Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. This whole idea of community is something that God is really stressing today. The Holy Ghost fell in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, the church was manifested. The church was always birthed in the heart of Christ before time began. Uh, The church is not a parenthesis in time. It's not an afterthought that God had this view that if Israel fails, therefore I have a secondary plan called the church and I'll I'll work with that group. No, the church was always the first thought in God's mind. And he brought it forth in time. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell and 3,000 souls were added to the church, the Bible says, daily such as were being being saved. And um, that whole experience at the first outpouring of the Holy Ghost in that manner is called Pentecost. By most theologians, right? And we have a Pentecostal era that sort of was activated and, and started. Now, most people, if you ask them, what makes you Pentecostal? They will, they will reference things like the moving of the Spirit or speaking in tongues, for example. And on the day of Pentecost, yes, those things did happen. Holy Ghost fell, they were full with the Spirit, they spake in, in other tongues. But when you examine Acts chapter 2 closely, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4. One of the major outcomes or consequences of the outpouring of the Spirit and the manifestation of the early church was a spirit of oneness, a spirit of community that was not present before. So one of the overt sort of um, yardsticks to gauge anything Pentecostal would be the oneness of the community of God's saints. And I know John Alley referenced these things for those of you that were at the ALS last year. And he said this, if you claim to be Pentecostal and you don't have the attendant characteristics of Pentecost as recorded in the book of Acts, you are not truly Pentecostal. So most people will say I'm Pentecostal because I speak in, in tongues. But yet what we've seen in the so-called Pentecostal seasonal movement was great expressions of the movement of the Spirit, but severe issues of division, sectarianism, and just schism, a schismatic spirit within that whole season. So I want to encourage us to be truly Pentecostal is to attain all the results that Pentecost desires to bring to the church of, of, of God. And one of them is, we read things like in Acts 2, and let me just read it for the record, Acts 2, 42, we read things like, for example, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
Now, we've never seen those results of Pentecost in Pentecostal circles, where everything, they had all things in common. And 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as everyone had, had need. There was a conscious awareness of the needs of others in that community. Now, one of the, one of the end goals of fivefold ministry recorded in Ephesians 4, where it says he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, um, for the building up of the body of, of, of Christ of itself up in love. It says one of the outcomes is that we all come to the full measure of the stature, of the fullness that belongs to Christ. And it speaks about a oneness, the unity of the faith. And Ephesians 4, early in that same chapter, verse 2 and 3, talks about the unity or the oneness of the Spirit. I want to talk to that chapter now, but Ephesians 4 makes for powerful study. So if you look at Ephesians 4, in the early part of Ephesians 4, it talks about the unity of the Spirit. The oneness of the Spirit. And later on in the chapter, it references fivefold ministry, who was given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, until we all come. Everyone say all, right? So there's this whole idea of community there again. Until we all come into the, the oneness of the faith. It's the oneness of belief. All believe the same thing. But in the priority of things, the oneness of the Spirit is referenced first early in the chapter, before the oneness or the unity of the, the faith. You have, to have, you have to be one in spirit first before you can be one in belief system, in your, in your faith. At least within your heart, you must be one in spirit. That is, um, you must be covenantly joined to brothers. And even though you disbelieve or you believe dissimilar things, but at least you recognize we are one body, one church globally. And once you have oneness in the Spirit, together with the operation of fivefold gifts, there will be this movement towards the oneness of the of faith, oneness of belief. Now, the early church had this oneness of Spirit. There was unity of Spirit. There was oneness in the Spirit that, that facilitated a whole lot of other things. Like in this context, it says there was conscious awareness of deficiency within that community. So things like individualism, self-centeredness, selfishness was consciously eradicated from the group. And it started with the kernel group, the 120, even before the Spirit broke upon them. What was true of the 120, you see, God always starts with a seed. What was true of the 120 became true of the early church. Even before the, the Spirit fell, it says, they were in one place, in one accord, right? On the day of Pentecost. And then the Spirit fell on those conditions. Even the activation and the birth of so-called Pentecost was precipitated or activated, ignited, if you would, by a condition of one accord. Everyone say accord. Not discord now. Eh? We don't discord or dissonance. We want accord and consonance. We want, we want community. So when the Lord, 
I can just hear the Lord speaking as I'm ministering to you. God is saying, you see, when it says until we all come, God is not waiting for the entire body of Christ to come to this position. When it says all, it is referencing a remnant company. In other words, a company representative sufficiently enough so that what is true of them could be construed as true of the entire church. Okay? Now, I would like to believe that this church could be that powerful in its representation. That when God sees what is true here, our state, our representation of community would be so forcefully powerful and impactful God can attribute to others what is true here, or God can use us as the ignition factor of an entire process. But God always requires a remnant. Right? Think about it, brethren. Did God have to wait for every single believer to be in the upper room on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem? He, there was 120. 120 is a multiple of 12. 12 references the apostolic principle. God didn't wait for everybody to be there. God simply needed a representative sample of the lot. What, if, if the power of their representation was strong enough, it could move heaven to start a brand new era upon the face of the earth called Pentecost in that time. Not so? Amen? Amen. So now let me ask you, do you think we have the capacity to be so powerfully representative enough that we could, by our representation, activate and initialize certain things in the heavens, not just concerning us, but concerning a whole city? Huh? This is not part of my notes. I'm speaking as I'm, as I'm seeing. Yes, I really believe this is what God is saying to us. This is true. You can apply the representative principle on, a, on multiple levels. Heads of households, husbands over households, when you pray, you pray representatively of, of the group, of, of your family. Cover them. Right? Remember, uh, those of you, I've been listening to Pastor Thamo's series now on mantles of changing seasons. Past few days, over and over again. And, and uh, he, he, he said when he started teaching um, the Ephraimite anointing. Joshua was the leader of, of the tribe of, of Ephraim. And Ephraim means doubly fruitful. And Moses had died. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. And Levi is a representation of the Pentecostal season. And the Ephraimite anointing uh, denotes the charismatic movement. Judah, uh, of which Caleb led, will be representative of the apostolic season. Right? So we have a movement from Pentecost to charismatic to, to the apostolic. But he said this, that Ephraim, in the middle of the two, you got... You got uh, uh, Moses from the tribe of Levi, representative of Pentecost. Sorry, uh, of the Pentecostal season. You got Ephraim, representative of the charismatic season, led by Joshua. You got Caleb, representative of the apostolic season, as the leader of the tribe of, of Judah. And he said this Ephraimite anointing is betwixt two. Right? It's an interim movement, right? Betwixt two. But when, when God, when Moses died and Joshua took over and they were about to, to, to possess the land, did God send everyone to spy the land? Question, who spied the land? 
12 leaders of all the tribes. Not just, not just a representative of each tribe, the leader of each of the respective tribes, okay? And so when the leaders went to spy the land, and you know the ten came back with a negative report, only Joshua and Caleb. Joshua the Ephraimite and Caleb would be the successive phase after the Ephraimite anointing. They came back and said, we are well able to go up, go in and possess the land. God's hands were tied because he was outvoted by ten to two. The leader decided for his tribe. So God did not need tribal consensus. He just needed the view of the leader. If the leader said no, he acted representatively on behalf of the, of the tribe. Not so? So it's serious. If you listen to the teaching, Pastor Thamo said that, therefore, it's incumbent upon leaders to have sufficient faith enough to appropriate every new land God gives to them. Because he doesn't show everyone the land. He shows the leader the land. And if the leader is sufficiently faithful enough, obedient enough to take it, he, when he makes a decision, it's not him making a decision. He's making the decision representatively of the group. So it's like on the day of Pentecost, who stood up to say, we are not drunk as you suppose? Who stood up and said, uh, well, did the prophet Joel say that in the last days I will pour out my spirit? Who was it? Peter. But the text says, not Peter. It says, and Peter standing up with the eleven said, one man speaks, but he speaks as one, but the voice of twelve. You see, it's not Peter. Yes, Peter is talking, but he says he's standing up with the eleven. So it's like he's speaking with the power of 12 apostolic configurations of grace vested in his voice. So when one speaks, the rest speak. Now I want you to get hold of this principle. It's a powerful principle in God. That if, you are, if, you, if, if your constitution is accurate sufficiently enough, you can act representatively of a whole core, a whole group. And I'm saying this in reference to us, brethren. If we can get community right. And you know where you must start? Start with your marriage. For those of you who are married here. You can't have accord. We can't have consonance and oneness here in the group corporately. When in your home, in terms of every family unit, there's discord in the marriage. The micro unit, the micro building block of the community of the church is families. So you exercise oneness there, accord there, with your kids. When you come in as a family, you come in with no schism, no issues. You're one, right? And so that will build into the corporate fabric of the oneness of this community, of, of, of the saints. So the early church had this. They had it so strongly, it was often referenced as a feature, okay? Often referenced... As a feature. Look at verse 46 of Acts 4, Acts 2. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, that's from oikos to oikos, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with, with all the people. So we're dealing with grace manifested as the favor of God. 
please understand the broad theme we are dealing with. Our broad theme is grace, not so. Still studying grace. But you see, grace mustn't become an abstract concept. It must take on fleshly form. And one of the manifestations of grace, I've said, is when God starts to favor you. But the favor now is not just individually. The favor now must become corporate. What I'm after now is favor upon a corporate community of people. And I said, now we're teaching one of the activators of that favor is the state of oneness, love, covenant, um, accord, consonance, agreement, uh, confederacy, conjugal, confederate relationships among us, where we see each other as true brothers, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That whole ideal from heaven's perspective is going to recruit unto itself huge favor. Right? Now, I said to you, we, we're tired of niggy niggy favor, right? Yeah, and there's little trappings of it. I'm telling you, as I teach and as I study this, I keep hearing the Holy Spirit say, there's a realm of favor. You're actually not tapping into. You, in fact, don't even know it exists because you are so unaccustomed to it that even your faith capacity in terms of what you're reaching out for is within the known sphere. God is saying to me, there's a level of favor that will literally blow your mind if you get the conditions right. And the Lord is saying the condition is simply community. Everyone say community. Mm-hmm. Say communality. Right? It just speaks to uh, oneness. Right? And, um, and I mentioned several things on Sunday which I don't want to reiterate because of time. But um, this culture, the apostolic culture was central to the whole ideal of community. There were four things they focused on. Apostolic, doctrine, remember? Fellowship, breaking of bread and, and prayers. Apostolic doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and, and prayers. There was oneness and communion. There was a conscious focusing on the needs of others more than personal needs. Okay, It's when the need of your brother takes priority over, over your own. Okay, there was, they met in the temple, it says, and they also met from house to house. We are a house. Yes, it was domestic biological dwelling units. Literally, if you take the scriptures literally, they met from house, dwelling unit, family dwelling unit to family dwelling unit. And it says in the temple. Two forms of meeting. The corporate meeting of the church was in the temple. It was more citywide gathering. And, but there was also instruction from House to house. The way I would like to interpret that is, yes, our local church represents a house. So in the city of Durban, under the, under the oversight of specific apostolic authority or a specific apostle, we meet, for example, as Gate Ministries Durban at this venue every Sunday, and we're meeting literally from house to house. Okay, But we also meet on a corporate scale under the oversight of our Father in the faith, at national meetings like ALS or ASIMS or schools. So that for me would be an application of the scripture. You could further break it down to if we locally represent the gathering corporately every Sunday, then our local house churches that we have uh, throughout Durban would be meetings from house to, to house. Now, you've got you to be committed to both levels. 
That's what the early see the early church had keys to their success. Everything that happened from house to house was downloaded by key apostles from the temple. Right? What was done in the corporate found its expression in the micro. Right? And so no house did their own thing, literally. Right? There was structure, there was protocol, there was, there was order. But what we see in the generally in the general church today is haphazard, unstructured, loose arrangements that foster error and invite all sorts of a host of, of problems. Okay? But thank God that we are in a safe environment. Amen. Tell your neighbor we are safe. This is how the early church functioned, okay? This is how they functioned. And then it says, um, verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord, adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. Now, I love that scripture, the Lord adding to their number. And never before have I had a passion to add to our number. Not for to pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, see how we're growing. My passion is that the word of God must grow and multiply, multiply as the book of Acts says, and prevail. Right? And we want many more people impacted with the gospel message. And we want to mature many more people into the ways of, of Christ. Okay? And I know that's going to happen. But you know to what they are added? It, when, you, when you read those verses... And the Lord added to their number. All right? The Lord added to a context. The Lord added to an environment. The Lord added to a culture. The Lord did not just add to anything. There was something so strong prevailing that the addition of the Lord was the lure. The Lord's lure to men. See, God must attract people to a culture. Let me just say this. The things and the values we hold dear is actually the answers that the world is seeking. If we model it correctly, people will stream up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the Lord, Isaiah 2, Micah 4, and they will say, teach us your ways. Right? It says the mountain of the Lord's house will be established on top of all the mountains, and people will stream to the house of the Lord. That will be the new evangelism. And they will say, teach us your ways. For what you people are modeling is so opposite to, antithetical to, to what the world is all about. It's a clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of this world versus the kingdom of our, of our God. Right? When they see what we value and what has become norm, the norm to us, is literally the answers they are seeking to solve their problems. Right? People are more attracted by a culture than by a message. And when your, when your culture is strong, it becomes your message. Yeah? How many of you, when you came in here, felt the love of the Lord in this place? Hmm? Yes? You felt the brotherhood. You felt valued. You felt special. Now, those things are critically important to me. Amen? So, we, all I'm saying is, brethren, we must now take it to the next level. The next level will be very costly. It's going to cost you much. Hmm? It's going to start with breaking your individualism and thinking more corporately. <laughs> it's going to start there. The average Christian is far too individualistic, far too self-centered, self-focused, self-absorbed. 
far too internal. Right? We need to look outside of ourselves and, and discern. That's what the Bible says. You discern the body of Christ. Yes. Here on Sunday, don't need great uh, acumen to mental acumen to discern the natural emblems. But you partake to discern each other. Right? The body of, of Christ. Okay, enough of uh, recapping. I haven't gotten into night study yet. Acts 4.46, that says, I love this, the section where it says they were taking their meals together with gladness. You know, gladness is, has been extracted from the life of the church. God spoke to me about joy this morning. I tell you, I was studying in, this, in my office. I don't know from where, but I felt happy. Right? I should be sad because my wife's not here this week, right? So don't tell her these things, otherwise I'm in trouble. <laughs> okay. But I really felt an uncanny, and I knew it's spiritual. And I knew it's the download of, I started laughing, I put a song on, and I was dancing in my office. The wow, God. And God said, you need to celebrate the joy of the Lord. My joy is your strength, you know? So I've determined to be far more joyful than I've ever been before, okay? Serious but joyful. Be happy. Enjoy life. Life is not so serious and somber. We are very serious, somber people. But if you hang around it sufficiently enough, you'll find we're the most happiest people to be around, okay? Be joyful, okay? So I want to encourage you. The Bible says, even when the early church suffered, it said they suffered greatly, but with great joy. They had a great joy knowing that they were partakers of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Even in a severe trial, there was this underlined, this underlined joy. Now, the Bible says they ate their meals, let me read it, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, what I want to encourage you, the next wave of God's dealings with this congregation is brotherhood, is Hebronic relationships, is oneness. We need to find each other more than we've ever had before to truly be the family of God in the earth today. And love mustn't be superficial. It says here, they had sincerity of heart. There was a sincerity about the whole thing. Because you can easily uh, uh, parade this. Eh? You can contrive this thing and it can be false. But it must be a heart issue. Hearts and souls must be involved. And they took it with gladness of heart. Even, and, you know, even when you celebrate uh, hospitality and you invite people over, the Bible says you must be hospitable without complaint. It's not just about being hospitable. It's not just about having people over. It's about your attitude. It's about the motivation with which you function that recruits favor and that recruits blessing. Don't just do it because Randall said this is a major key. So hence I'm going to do it. No, heart and soul must be in it. Inviting my brothers over were bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I'm so glad I can't wait for them to arrive. Now usually we can't wait for them to go, right? I'll be honest, <laughs> some of you, you say, when are these people going to leave? No, no, that mustn't be. I'll show you. Yeah, we read Genesis 18 today. Yeah, you read it? You notice how when those three um, visitors left, Abram didn't say, bye-bye, guys, go. The Bible says, and as they left, he went with them and he walked with them a while. Right? It was like he didn't want them to leave. Right? Right? Now, don't overdo it, right? <laughs> um, 
in this culture of Hebron, we must love each other and love each other's company. We mustn't tolerate each other. You know, we've gone past that place where we just tolerate each other and we're tolerating each other's presence. Your eyes must be open to really to see and to discern the value of your, of your brother. Okay? So I really want to encourage you um, with that. I'm going to skip a few scriptures because I'm just worried about time. Acts 4.32, I think I read this on Sunday. I'm going to reference it as a witness. I'm going to read it. Acts 4.32, the congregation of all those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's my new buzzword. Say one heart, one soul. It's like congregation, one heart, one soul. Who read Luke 24, right? Remember the two walking on the road to Emmaus? The Bible says, and the, did, they said, did not our heart burn while he spake the word to us? Notice the conflict of grammatical usage of terms. Our, plural, heart, singular. You don't talk like that in English. You would normally say, did not our hearts burn? While he spoke, they said, did not our heart burn? So two became one while they were, while they were walking. Now that's where we need to be. You see, when you walk with one heart, Jesus said, the Bible says, when Jesus saw them, he drew near to them. I'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus drew near to them. Jesus will always draw near to people of one heart. Right? I tell you never we are one heart, one soul. It's one heart and it's one soul. Some versions say one heart, one mind. Right? Be one in heart and one in, 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 in mind. And not one of them claimed anything belonging to him that was his own, but in all things they, they had common property to them. And great power, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And I like this. An abundant grace was on them all. Some, some versions say, and great grace was upon them all. The word for great here is exactly the same word used in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, where it says, God resists the proud, but He gives more grace, King James, or NASB says, but He gives a greater grace to the humble. And I explained the word megas in the Greek for great here, which is abundant or great grace was upon them all. doesn't just denote great as in more quantitatively, but more qualitatively. Right? A superior degree of a thing. And I, I would refer you to the first CD on grace that we have at the table, where I went into great detail explaining this Greek word megas. Right? It's not just more of. It's a superior quality. And there I explain there's no variance or degrees of grace from God's perspective. In Himself, His grace is a consistent whole. But He measures it out incrementally to men based upon their preparedness to receive by virtue of the fact that they've created right conditions to, to engage this grace. Okay? So if you are proud, it, it's repelled. But if you foster humility, it, it comes to you incrementally in, in time. So, like the Bible in faith, in reference to faith, speaks of faith. It speaks of, oh, he of little faith. The Bible references little faith. 
Then the Bible says, great faith. Jesus said, I've not seen so great faith, not in all Israel, in reference to that centurion officer, remember? So even he references varying degrees of a thing. Right? We grow from faith to faith, from glory to glory. And then it says, and he gives grace upon grace. Now, this abundant grace measure is possible to be accessed. on a This is not accessed individually. This is accessed by the state of everybody in the same position at the same time. Right? Now, is it possible for us to reach their brethren? Come on, talk to me. Right? You see, I can be personally circumspect in my walk with God. I can observe personal purity. And Psalm 84 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and He gives glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. Not from Him that walks uprightly. From them. There's a them company that accesses corporate grace. I can live that verse privately in my world. And yes, God will bless me and I will grow in grace. But I'm not now selfish anymore just to have mastered things that recruit grace unto me singularly. I want the them grace. Right? The Lord God is a son and shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Okay? And abundant grace was not on some of them. Abundant grace was upon them. Oh! I just love this reference, right? Where it'll be said of us, Gate Ministries, Durban Central, yeah, this community of saints, there's something distinctive about them. If you have a distinctive, it distinguishes you from the rest. Can't say you have distinctives with no distinguishing factors that separate you from others. One of our distinctives must be, wow, when we come into this church or this group of people, all we can taste and see in the atmosphere is an abundance of grace. Right? People must taste the grace atmosphere. An abundance of grace was upon them all. But that comes to a people committed to community. Okay. So I encourage you, and I just want to talk on this more now. They ate their meals with gladness of heart and sincerity of heart. Right? Meeting from house to house and then in the temple, under apostolic oversight, four pillars of an apostolic community, apostles, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and, and, and prayers. Spirit of oneness that started before Pentecost with the 120, when 3,000 souls got saved by virtue of Peter's preaching, representatively of everyone preaching, it was just the voice, 3,000 souls get saved. In this commentary, in those 3,000, what was true of the 120, the same character is true of these guys. Right? And great grace was upon them. Oh, commonality of interest, uh, using corporate need to satisfy the needs of individuals. Great grace was upon them all. And with great power, the apostles gave witness of the... You see, what I'm after is what these things generate. There will be a proclamation of the word with such power... Because the context from which that word comes will be authentic. Do you know we're not short of revelation in Durban? Who knows that? It's, it's fast, fast and easily accessible. Right? I think we're over-revealed, <laughs> if there's such a word. Right? 
But you know what's lacking? The gap between revelation and manifestation. Yeah? Revelation and, and manifestation. Incarnation of the principles and the manifestation of them. You know, a part of me is tired of referencing community without seeing it. Referencing Hebron without seeing it. We talk it. We are very good orators. And we can verbally espouse the truth. And some of us here are some of the best preachers in South Africa. Yeah, I'm talking about you, not me. You sitting there. You can talk a principle. But you know, your greatest... Um, what gives your talk power is when you talk from having mastered it practically in your life. And your voice becomes impactful. So with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection from a context, right? Which any uh, naysayer or critic out there could not dispute by virtue of what they said they could model in the lives of lives presented as as exhibit A, exhibit. There was testimonies. This is what the word testimony means, right? Or uh, wait in Jerusalem until you be endured with power and high, and you shall be witnesses. You, it doesn't say you shall witness. Got it wrong. It says you shall be witnesses. In the court of law, you get evidence. right? Exhibit A, to, to corroborate or deny certain facts presented in a court of law. Uh, when God says you will be witnesses, it means you would have modeled kingdom culture so much that if there's proclamation by apostles they can have exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C to establish the truth of everything they are saying. The greatest testimony of the gospel is a changed life. Not so? A life altered. And I'm saying one of the, one of the great exhibits, um, exhibit A I will call it, you know, your most powerful uh, corroborating factor for the truth of anything apostolic, would be the power of community. Say it again. Please listen with the eye of the Spirit, the ear of the Spirit. The most powerful supporting evidence to anything apostolic. It's not your highfalutin doctrine. It's not your great revelation. It's the degree to which you have forged community and love in your local church with others. This is the heart of the apostolic. It was a critical outcome of Pentecost. Hmm? It's the end, one of the end goals of Ephesians 4 with the operation of fivefold gifts until we all come to this place. Yeah? So I want to encourage us. We want to reach the end as quickly as possible. <laughs> yes, I want to. I certainly want to. Hospitality is a mentality before it's an activity. If you, focus it on, if you focus on it being an activity without your ingraining the mentality, the, if you focus on the activity, the activity loses impact and you will not have the attendant resource, provision and enablement by God to do it if you purely engage it as an activity without establishing it as a mentality, as an attitude within your being. Right? So it's not something you're clinically engaging. So when I was thinking of these things and the events of today, I wrote these things down. As I put the phone down, 
the Lord said to me, hospitality is a mentality. Right? Without it, you'll be mental. <laughs> right? <laughs> but you can't engage the activity without it being a condition of your heart. Otherwise, it will be a drudgery and a difficulty every time you do it. And you, it will steal your joy instead of adding to your joy. Okay? It will steal your joy instead of adding to your joy. And then I wrote this. He who desires hospitality as a recipient thereof must first sow hospitality as a giver of it. Whatever you sow, you will, you will reap. So if you sow it, guess what? It's going to come back to you. So he, the Bible says, he who desires friends must do what? Proverbs says, must show himself friendly. Right? A lot of people want to be purely on the recipient end of being waited upon by a host. Right? But you must sow that to another. And we don't just sow to reap. We just sow to be obedient. But reap you will. And let me just say this, the scripture is very clear. To the measure you do it will be the measure to which it will be measured back to you again. Yeah? So if I were you, I would say, oh, now we're not doing this in lieu of a reward to be it being meted back to us again. We're simply doing it to engage it as a lifestyle. Eh? As a lifestyle. We're saying, God, I want to do this. And let me just say this like I said on Sunday. Kings will host you. People of influence will start to host, will start to host you. But if you do it, like I said on Sunday when we read 1 Corinthians 12, you do it to the one to, from whom you can see no reciprocation on their part to do it back to you again. But you're doing it purely to show value of how you honor that the one that seems less honorable, the one that seems less weaker, you sh you're showing how they are honored in your estimation, and so you set the table before them. Amen? Right? It's amazing how the spirit in a meal can accommodate for perceived deficiencies in the meal itself. But let me just say, if your heart is right, God's going to give you the capacity to entertain kings in your home. Please take this as a word from God. Kings will come to your home. Some of you, you know who I'm talking to in your hearts. Kings will, and people of high, of, of, of great stature, both secularly and spiritually, you will entertain. Because Jesus said, if you do whatever to the least of these, you've done it unto, you've done it unto me. So you're going to train your mind. I'm not doing it unto Rakem. I'm doing it to the Lord in him. Yeah, right? It's as though, what if the Lord would say to you, Mark and Cindy, I personally am coming for supper tomorrow night. Personally pitch up at seven. What if the Lord said that to you? What, what will your mindset be? Wow. God's going to just suspend his divinity for, for two hours and he's coming in bodily form to sup with me. What will your mindset be? What, what degree, what lens would you go to in terms of your preparation to receive the Christ? But when Bernie and Vernon come, I must treat them as though I'm receiving Christ. I'm receiving Christ. Amen? So, if you receive a prophet, in the name of a prophet, you receive a, you receive a, a prophet's reward. I'm trying to find the text it's Matthew 10, 14. Let me read this text. 
Matthew 10, 40. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him that sent me. Can you see it? He who receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives my father who? Who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name, watch, in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones a cup of cold water to drink. Truly, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Now, maybe I'll end with this. Everyone say, in the name. In the name. So Jesus said, you receive me, you receive the one who sends me. Everyone who receives you, receives me. In receiving you, they receive me and the Father who sent me. It's the power of in the name of. When you say you receive someone in the name, you're receiving not just like I taught you, in the nature of, or in the power, or by virtue, or in the authority of that person, or to accomplish the function or purpose of that person. I taught this in the Passover series as a whole, one hour just on those three things, right? Um, but also, it's you receiving the representation in which they come of the higher, or the, or the, the one in whom they come, right? So, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or on behalf of representatively on behalf of the Lord himself. Receive a righteous man in the name. In the representation of a righteous man, receives a righteous man's reward. Then Jesus said, if you, in the name of a disciple, now are you a disciple, yes? Yeah. He says, if you, in your representation, in your name, give a cold, cold water to drink to little one, he said, you will never lose your reward. Right? You will never lose your reward. Let me just say the same thing in terms of how Mark said it. Exactly the same thing Mark said in Mark 9.41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. Because of your name as followers of Christ. In other words, you're not just acting as Julian. You're acting as a follower of Christ. It says you will never lose your reward. What I'm saying is there are always rewards attendance with, with hosting some, right? With being hospitable to, 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 to others. Check this verse out in Matthew 27. Matthew 25, 37 says, The righteous will answer him, said, Lord, did we, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when did, when did we see you as a stranger? By the way, do you know that the Greek word for hospitality means to be kind to strangers? To be kind to strangers. Now, you might say to me, but then that absolves me because I know everyone here. No one's a stranger to me. And the Lord spoke to me this. Be hospitable to remove the stranger element in the person you think you know. Remove the stranger element in Shan. Is a stranger to you in some respects. So remove the stranger dynamic in everybody else. You know, the worst thing is to be part of a family 
or a community of people and still feel alone. It's not because you're part of the group that you're not a stranger. You can be, who said this, that, that famous actor who died, the comedian? He was, he was a film actor as well. Robin Williams said it. He said somewhere before his death, he said, it's the worst feeling to be part of a group and yet still feel alone. It's the worst, I think, in family to be part of a family and still to feel like you're a stranger in the group. The worst, the worst thing for me, it'll be, this, it'll be the worst thing in my heart if I know that there's someone in this church that has been here every week but has still felt lonely. That will be the worst indictment upon our ministry. It must never, ever happen. Right? So tell your neighbor, I'm determined to remove the stranger in you. I'll explain some of the Greek semantics of the Greek word for hospitality later. This is, if you know Matthew 25, it's like a judgment setting. And, and, and so the Lord would say, I never knew you. You depart from me. Because when I was sick, you never visited me. When I was hungry, you never fed me. This is, then the righteous say to the Lord, when were you sick? We didn't visit you. When were you hungry? And we did not feed you. And they say, you were a stranger. When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you have done it unto me. Let those words ring in your mind. You are doing it, especially, Jesus said, in as much as you do it to any one of my brothers. Now let, let me just remind you, do you know that you are not just sons of God? You are brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm? Do you know that? He's your senior brother in the family of God. Hebrews teaches this very clearly. It says, for this reason, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's what the Bible says. He is the son. We are sons too. So, and it says, we're not just heirs of God, but that we are co-heirs, co joined with him in our brotherhood. So it says, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. So it says, we... Invite strangers in. They ask, when did we invite the stranger in? Jesus said, in as much as you have done it to one of these, my brothers, one in your household, you're doing it unto, you're doing it unto me. But I like what he says, even to the least of these, you have done it unto me. Even to the least of these, you have done it unto me. I think it would be a great privilege to host the Lord Jesus himself. Would you not? <laughs> How would I respond if the Lord himself said, I'm coming home. It's just up with you. It's to hang out. But you know, he always, that opportunity is available every week, literally, to us. The early church knew they had a key. And when Christ is valued in every member of the body of Christ, listen, when Christ is valued in every member by every member of the other member in the entirety of the body of Christ. We're going to see His abundant grace manifest 
in ways that we have never ever before previously experienced. It is literally going to blow our minds. Because we are the body of Christ. Christ the head is in the heavens. Seated at the right hand of his father. But his body is in the, his body is in the earth. Whatever is true of the head must be true of the body. Christ the head is not divided. So his body should not be divided. And he the head will respond to anything like himself on the earth. If his body is going to be truly reflective of everything he is. Foxes have holes. What does it say? Birds have nests. Foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's the head, headship. But he's looking for a body to lay his head. The mind of Christ will be the mind, the head of Christ, the mind, the intelligence of Christ, the brilliance, the wisdom of Christ will be the, the experience of the body of Christ when the body becomes like the head. One. Okay? One. So I want to encourage you, sow hospitality. Tell your neighbor, sow hospitality. You know, I didn't get to even to Luke 24, Genesis 18. Um, we'll get there sometime. But it's fascinating. I want you to really go into depths in your meditation upon those two portions. Next time we meet, I want to plumb the depths of those two portions of Scripture. And when you, when you examine those two portions of Scripture, I want to encourage you, uh, see what possibilities there are when someone sincerely hosts another. See what comes out of that, that context. Right? Genesis 18 is the most powerful, powerful depiction. And this was modeled by the patriarch, Abraham. Okay? So, would you be hospitable? Uh, don't, don't spare not. So, Proverbs 11, 24. I, I want to quote this. Just, I'll quote it again in the next session, but as a witness to you. Um, learn to sow. Right? Learn to sow. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says the following. Let me quote it to you from the three versions. It's, it's a verse that you must install in the fabric of your spirit. There is one who scatters, who gives. There's one who scatters and yet increases. He scatters, but he's not diminished by what he gave. He gives, but he's not depleted by the value that he gave. He's one who scatters, but yet he increases. All the more, and yet there's one that withholds what is due, yet it only results in want or need. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. would like to be watered. Waters, uh, the image of refreshment, revitalization, you know. Uh, we all love to be watered. But it says, he who waters will also of himself be be watered. The same version, the same portion in the NLT is brilliant. It says, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper and those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Same, same in the NIV says this. One person gives freely yet gains the more. Another withholds unduly and comes to poverty. The generous person will prosper, and whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. The Bible in basic English says, verse 24, like this. A man may give freely, and still his wealth will be increased. Another man may keep back what is right, and only comes to be 
in perpetual need. When you do this and you, you say, I'm going to scatter, I'm going to give, and biblically you must tell your mind, I am not going to be depleted by the amount I've sacrificed to do this. Scripturally, I've just enriched myself. I have watered another. I have hosted another. And he who waters another himself will be watered. He will host another himself will be hosted or waited upon. Okay? You, and, but listen carefully. There's a whole lot of spiritual transactions that you have now set up in your life to transpire by virtue of the context and environment you have created in your heart and your home to play themselves out. And I wish we had time for Genesis 18 and Luke 24. You will see how you've set up yourself a context for the fulfillment of prophetic promises that are swiftly going to, swiftly going to come to pass. Okay? And so I want to encourage you um, to give this great priority. There are great days ahead. So do you think we can be sufficiently representative of this culture? Yeah? You think we can model it so impactfully, so accurately, when God sees it, God can initialize and activate other factors of His will, His prophetic will for our lives. I really believe this is going to, this is going to happen. Amen? So I want to encourage you um, to excel in this. What the Bible says, you must be given to hospitality. It says, practice hospitality. The word practice denotes, do it as often enough until you've mastered it. You know, when you practice a skill, you do it with repetition, with the view of becoming excellent in precision at the execution of the task. Okay? So I want to encourage you to do the same. Amen? So are, are you going to practice this? Right? Practice hospitality. Tell your neighbor, hospitality is a mentality before it's an activity. Amen. Stand with us. We're going to celebrate communion. You know, Jesus modeled hospitality. The, the communion table is more than the celebration of his body. He could, have, he, could have, he could have construed of any other thing by which to mem memorialize his death and for us to celebrate it. But he did it via a table. That's why it's called the table of the Lord. The table of the Lord. Jesus was always concerned that environments be structured or be prepared for spiritual transactions to, to take place. Right? And a table denotes fellowship. It denotes people communally sitting around and partaking of the, of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, would you bow your heart in prayer? This, for me, was the greatest expression of hospitality ever. For it was the sharing of the life of He, the Son of God, with those whom He loved. It was the sharing of everything of the vast reservoir of grace within Himself to those to whom He would commit the furtherance of the gospel in the kingdom. It was a celebration of communion, common union, communality, sameness. That's what this table is all about. I pray every Sunday we celebrate this table. It will remind us that we are bone of each other's bone. We are flesh of each other's flesh. I haven't yet started to prosecute what will come forth from this. But I'm telling you, if we touch this, 
we're going to secure something powerful in the realm of the Spirit. Amen. So let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. We, as we lift up our hearts to you, and as we celebrate communion, we celebrate each other. We value each other, for we value you in each other. We celebrate the Christ in, in every one of us. And I know that you are in the full complement of the believers here. And as we regard you in all, we'll get a more composite, complete view of you and the experience of you in the midst of us. We desire abundant grace, corporate grace. With great signs and wonders, we will give expression and become witnesses of the resurrection and the message of the kingdom in the earth today, Father. Father, we pause. I pray what was true on the day of Pentecost and in the life of the early church be true of this community of saints. Once again, come on, lift your hands. Once again, I pray a spirit of community, a spirit of covenant, of Hebronic relationships would rest upon us all. I impart it to every believer, to everyone that is physically here, and those that would listen via the recording. I pray this oneness, the spirit of community would be our portion in the name of the Lord. I pray that you, when you see us, you would see what is true of yourself in the heavens. You would see it reflected on the earth. We desire this with all of our hearts, Father. So, Father, we just pause to quiet our hearts. We realize the somberness of this reality, the seriousness of it, the imperative nature of it, its importance, its profundity. Oh God, I ask that we would, we, would, we would have this. We desire this. We want it. So do a work in our hearts. Put the same earnest care in our hearts for each other, God. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.